This morning as we gather, we are finishing up a series that we've been, we started about seven weeks ago on the seven deadly sins. And if you've been tracking with us, you know that uh, these are things that if you're going on a journey, uh, can quite possibly keep you from making your destination. And our concern has been how to identify what they are, how they keep us from God, how they weigh us down, and um, when, when they show up, what to do with them. And I don't know if you recall what they are, but uh, I'll just go ahead and, and, and list them. And maybe you've seen them or maybe you haven't. Uh, we'll start off with pride and then envy and then anger. And I think somewhere along the way, um, gluttony got mixed in as well as... Um, Lust, talked about that last week, so that's five. Missing two, sloth, sloth. Let me just stop there for a minute, can I? We have two cats that we only, we just hired them to basically enjoy the house, but when certain creatures that are forbidden from the house show up, their job is to make sure that they're given the no trespasser sign. Well, uh, yesterday my wife called me in a fit of anger uh, about the sloth of this one cat who was perched on top of the, of the, of the patio furniture, which is, we've for years wanted nice patio furniture, so we coveted it and we bought some, and as a result, uh, we've enjoyed it. The cats like it probably and use it probably more than we've been able to. And one cat decided that he would just perch himself right on the top of the back of the patio furniture. And this is where sloth kicks in. There was uh, an unauthorized mouse that decided at the bottom of the patio furniture, right below this cat, that she would make a nest for giving birth to her babies. And... So she just tested a few spots and then found the perfect spot right below the cat. And sure enough, tore a nice big hole in the patio furniture. My wife went out there. Anger again kicked in. Sloth continued to manifest itself. Um, homicide isn't the... Well, anyway, we won't go there. But um, the, uh, the end result was, um, you know, my, my wife shooed the mouse off. The cat jumped down, waited till all the drama was over, and then proceeded to return back to his place of rest. All of this to say, I'm not going to go so far as to say cats are evil, but I will say this, cats have issues. And my, my, my wife said, um, to kind of throw the gender issue into it, she said, yeah, these are male cats and they don't do anything. But we had a female cat who passed away uh, last fall, and she was, she, was our, our, she was our guardian. And um, so I said, what are you saying the solution here is? She said, well, maybe we need another cat. I'm thinking the solution is maybe we trade someone, their one cat, albeit female, for our two male cats. But we'll see how it goes. Uh, anyhow, you get eyes to see things uh, when you give them a category, and sometimes when they happen, 
you know when sin emerges, and when it does, bad things begin to occur. And in this case, sloth led to a lack of diligence and, and, uh, and destruction of property. Well, I know that's kind of, uh, kind, kind of a fun story, albeit a little bit expensive on our end. Uh, but today we want to look at something that has a little, little bit to do with money, and that is uh, the topic of greed. It's the last of the seven that we're going to be exploring. If you can imagine... Uh, Greed being something that was in this backpack. Uh, Greed goes right along with accumulation and even hoarding. And if I really wanted to press the illustration, I would just jam this thing full of stuff, so much stuff that I wouldn't be able to carry it when I finished up with with the message. But I'll just let your imagination uh, take that where you want to go with it. And just consider the fact that when you're weighed down with things and stuff, it has a way of beginning to really do some serious damage to your spiritual life. So let's uh, look in our, in our uh, message notes. If you'd flip them over, or flip them to the front rather, uh, if you have them there in your bulletin. Jesus gave a couple of, um, uh, I think, some, some counter instructions to the seven deadly sins. And these include what we call the Beatitudes, where in Matthew 5-7, through 7, Jesus gives a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes are just sort of like uh, a series of staccato blesseds. But yet they're jam-packed full of very useful information in order to keep God close in your life. And the thing that, um, that we want to do is we want to try to exchange uh, eyes that see things only from a greedy point of view to eyes that see things in a more merciful manner. And that's how we're going to connect these two dots, because I think the two are related as we consider greed for a moment. And I just want to jump right into the story uh, that fits the backdrop of this very well. And it's from Luke chapter 12. And in Luke chapter 12, um, just to set it up, Jesus is preaching and talking to people about the ways of the kingdom. And as he does, he runs across a uh, a fellow who's very concerned about the issue of money. So much so that he sees in Jesus uh, an authority who could perhaps weigh in on a dilemma that he has with a brother. You see, dad passed away, there's money that needs to be distributed, and as siblings are considering where that money needs to go, naturally there's a debate. And what Jesus uh, was approached for regarding uh, that issue um, was... For him to weigh in on it and to make the right decision on how this needed to unfold. And Jesus saw this and he's like, this isn't why I'm here. I'm not here to help you arbitrate these matters. I'm here to actually point you to something a little bit deeper that's in play. And so let's talk about that for a second. And he begins to tell a story about a farmer. And the farmer was uh, a guy probably... um, I would say, given, given the nature of the story, about my age, he had done a pretty good um, uh, run on his farm and had gotten so productive that he found himself having uh, a, a, such a degree of excess that the only thing he could be preoccupied with in that moment was, how do I manage this and how can I allow this to carry me through the rest of life in a very comfortable retirement? So he took some very suitable storehouses and he just um, imploded them so that on their property they could just rebuild much larger storehouses 
And as he did that, he began to survey everything that he had accumulated and the result of hard labor and shrewd business thinking, he began to ponder the possibilities of resting from his labor and starting to eat, drink, and be merry now that he earned it. And as he's contemplating these retirement plans that involve maybe golfing in Florida, he's uh, considering how um, all of these things have basically pointed to a life that um, was lived well, that now he's getting a justified return on all of his efforts. And it's all about me, me, me. And Jesus is pretty clear on that. And as it unfolds, the guy is putting, crossing his arms and he's resting content in, in this vision that's in front of him. And then Jesus drops the bomb. And he tells them, this guy who did so much for himself in terms of accumulation over the course of his life, unfortunately won't be able to enjoy it. Because this evening, he's no longer going to be among the living. And as Jesus unfolded that to the brother who was so concerned, he said, you can spend all of your life pursuing these things, but you can't take them with you. Matter of fact, it's a pretty poor investment in the broad scheme of things. The things of God are actually the things that you need to really focus on. But like so many people, we forget that God is really an important part of the equation called life. And we set our sights on something lower. And as we do, there's a mechanism that begins to kick in that drives you through life that um, the Bible calls greed. And so turn your message notes over. We're going to look at the problem of greed. And hopefully, if you've ever been affected by it, uh, you'll understand it. And if you haven't really recognized it, maybe this will help. The problem is, you and I function in an economy, not to get too like heady on this whole thing, driven by discontentment while fostering fear and scarcity. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, I don't know if you guys read, uh, you know, Reader's Digest, or maybe you read something a little bit more, um, uh, more racy, like uh, car magazines, or maybe you're looking at, as a female, maybe looking at something to do with furnishings or clothing. And as you do, something very subtle begins to rush over you, and that is um, this, uh, this, this, this impending sense of discontentment. Like, there's a, there's, a, there's a message here that tells me, if I have this, I'll be so happy. Oh, life will be so good. I will just feel awesome if this thing is included into my, into my, into my walk here on earth. And what that essentially does is fosters a discontentment about your clothing, your car, your kitchen furnishings. Anything that um, they can put in front of you that says, this is much better than what you have. And as they try to churn discontentment, they're considering how on a scale of an economy like the, the economy in the United States, how if enough people are discontent, they can make a whole lot of money. And so marketers are tuned into the psychology of putting in front of you something that needs to be a certain way and the reality of where it's not, which would be your existence. And then trying to close that gap with their products. I can't say that that's a terrible thing, but I can say if you're not aware that that's going on, 
you need to see what's driving it. And then there's this sense of fostering fear and scarcity. I mentioned reading Reader's Digest. I used to read Reader's Digest. I know that sounds kind of nerdy and maybe uh, doctor's uh, office type of reading, but I enjoyed it. Uh, good writing in there, but I found myself eventually discarding it altogether. Primarily because as I was reading it, I would come to one pharmaceutical ad after another to the point where it seemed like inter, interspersed between all of the pages of the stuff I was trying to read were all of these dire warnings about health concerns that people were having that I may have as well and not even realize that I may have this disease or I may have this syndrome. And if I do, there is the appropriate product available for you. And instead of reading Reader's Digest and getting inspired, I found myself reading it and getting anxious, thinking at the end of my reading time I was going to have uh, an issue with high cholesterol or high blood pressure or whatever it is that they're trying to foster fear in me so that I can move into um, their product space. And then there's just the whole idea of scarcity. I wonder sometimes if the Great Depression had maybe a negative impact over the long haul in ways that uh, we're just beginning to realize. Have you ever seen a show called Hoarders? Maybe you're familiar with it. It's where people accumulate an excessive amount of stuff. And I wonder if the mindset for that is scarcity. Like we lived through the Depression. We didn't have anything. We didn't have two nickels to rub together. We didn't have... Uh, we didn't have uh, you know, enough food on the table. We didn't have just fill in the blank. It was not there. And when the prosperity of the next few decades began to happen, people started thinking, we need to get more. We need to accumulate more. And then all of a sudden, if you're like I am, you, you look at your parents growing up and you're like, why are you hoarding all this stuff? And then you realize that maybe you're infected a little bit by it as well and in denial. Like my, my wife might say... Um, you know, why do you have all this stuff? And I might say, well, I, I might need that someday. Uh, it's important. I know the role of downsizing, but I also get that if I have just enough stuff for that day that may or may not happen, then I'll be covered. And it's this idea of scarcity that somehow fuels in us drives and desires that, believe it or not, can pull us away from God. Fear, discontentment, and always feeling like you lack are very contrary to something that God easily provides for us. And I'll just tell you right up front what they are. They are the peace that passes all understanding. They are contentment that we have everything that we need in Christ as far as our person goes. And then there is this sense that God, as we pray uh, the Lord's Prayer, if you've ever prayed it, one of the things that it says is give us this day our daily bread. It's just kind of a metaphor for God provide for us where we don't know how we're going to realize that provision when we need it. Well, let's just go on into greed and what it is. There are those people within our culture who would say greed is actually a very good thing. There was a movie out a few years ago called Wall Street. And if you ever saw it, you know the, the, main, the main character in it is um, Gordon Gecko, who when talking to a, a group of young, aspiring uh, people in business and in, 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 in the stock exchange. 
He just said in one summary statement, greed is good. And the reason why he said it is because whoever the writers were of the movie knew, reflected within a segment of our culture, are people who thrive on greed. It is the psychological condition that they have to get themselves in that says we need to look at every opportunity that we can to accumulate. And we can't leave any stone unturned. We can't leave any angle not worked. And greed becomes a mindset that people adopt on those higher levels that actually filter down to you and I and and even our kids. It's just inherent within our nature, believe it or not, to be greedy, to want things or something that we desire that can provide um, what's necessary to fill a need that only God can fill. Um, So if you consider this for a second, if you desire to be happy and to feel secure, if you want to be fulfilled in your job or in your life, if you want to have sufficiency and be able to work towards it, believe it or not, those are all God-given longings. God made us for joy. He intended us to feel secure and to know security. He called us initially when we go all the way back to the garden before the fall and things went south. He called us to purpose to tend the garden, to expand on it, to develop it, to find fulfillment in this experience. And he wanted us to have sufficiency, but not necessarily without him in the equation. So these are misguided attempts to try to fulfill needs in our lives that only God can fulfill. And greed is a replacement God that has a power and a force that when it is allowed to go to work in us, It seems like it would be a good thing to have, to be secure, to um, uh, find fulfillment in accumulation, but it always leaves us empty. And so let's look at what it does. Greed will instead cause you to tune your whole mind for seeing ways to gain. And I... I don't know if that, if that makes any sense, but we've talked about how our minds are tuned to see certain things. Like, for example, on the, on the, um, on the stained glass behind me, there is a, an imagery of Jesus as the good shepherd. And then underneath it, uh, you see the sheep. And I had a lady tell me, she's been coming here probably since this building has been uh, in, in place Uh, And when her son, who was uh, young at the time when the building was built, would look up at that stained glass, he would see the sheep, but then he would see actually faces of people in the sheep. And if you look at it just right, I don't know if it's bright enough or not, you kind of, your brain kind of tricks you into seeing human faces in that. And so I did a little survey in the last service, and I said, now how many of you, when you look at that scene up there, see kind of a facsimile of human faces? And about a third of the people raised their hand saying, yeah, you know, every time I look at it, I see that. And other, everybody else is like, I don't see that. I don't know what you're talking about. But it just goes to show how when we want to see something, sometimes uh, we, we look for it. And when we're, when we're not aware that that's a possibility, we don't even see it at all. 
If you've ever seen a Christmas story, you know where I'm going with the, the, these points here. And a Christmas story uh, is set um, in the Victorian era, and the main character is Ebenezer Scrooge, whose whole aim in life, I think, is summarized by these points. He had an opportunity to have a meaningful life relationally with a love interest that could have evolved into a more, more rounded approach. But because his mind had become tuned to greed, that, that, that became less significant in his own thinking. And he tuned not only his whole approach to seeing opportunities for gain, but as he did, he looked at other people as a means to an end. There's this guy over here. He, he's done pretty well for himself. If I somehow align with him or I somehow do business with him, I can really stand again. There's this person over here, though. They haven't done anything with their lives. They have nothing to offer me, and I just discount them as a human being. And pretty soon what happens is you're looking at people in terms of the value of, of what, they, what they can offer. It's commodifying people in terms of what they can do for you, and it sees others as a means to an end. And then it sees God as important only when useful. Now, I'm not knocking capitalism. I'm not knocking business. I'm not knocking people that are involved in sales. But one thing that I know in those realms, there's a strong temptation to be pulled into the gravitational force of greed, and it begins to shape every part of who you are. And there are some people uh, who come to church and, uh, you know, they might come to this church for a little while. They might come to another church. But what they're doing is they're scanning for people to network with. And they're just going to different bodies where people meet and uh, trying to connect with those so that, um, yeah, I'm going, I'm taking my family, we're worshiping God. But in your heart of hearts, God is only a useful means to a greater end. And so... The church just becomes a, a vast network to be exploited. And as, uh, as that happens, and you see people more in terms of how you commodify them, and you see God as someone who is distant, pretty much not related or relevant to your world for all practical purposes, but is useful nonetheless in terms of what, uh, what, what, how, how he can service my needs, Pretty soon when you take that approach, your ability to love other people starts to diminish because you're seeing more and more of them in terms of their economic value rather than as God's designed each of us, no matter where we're at in our station of life, as made in his image, which gives us an incredible amount of intrinsic value. And then there's the whole trust factor. Because pretty soon, you know in your heart that you're doing all of this stuff for a particular end. And you know, and you're thinking everybody else is doing it. Honestly, where you end up at is you become suspicious of other people. Not really fully trusting them, wondering what their game is, and always having an eye to seeing how they're getting ahead and maybe getting over on you. And pretty soon, you're so jaded 
in your view of humanity, that that capacity that God gave you to love uh, almost is extinguished. And if you recall the story from the Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge had a love interest, and clearly what he saw in her was obscured by what he saw in terms of economic gain. And to take it a little bit further, if you've ever seen the movie Ocean's Eleven, which uh, has George Clooney as the, as the primary protagonist, uh, there is an opponent, so to speak, someone that he's trying to scam, who is also uh, a little shady in his business dealings. And the only reason why they're even having a conversation together is because the, the, the other fellow who is opposed to George Clooney has taken his love interest and made her his wife. And this creates some tensions within the storyline. But the bottom line for what I want to share today is summarized in a conversation that George Clooney had with him where they're talking about the role of this woman who they both uh, are, are drawn to and what that means. And George Clooney basically made the statement, um, how does test factor into uh, what's getting ready to go down? What if she gets in the way? And his response was, if she gets in the way, then, then um, I'll, I'll be happy to throw her under the bus as well. And what was so ironic about the statement is it was under a closed caption setting where Tess is watching the exchange unfold, and it becomes clear to her that somebody has been gaming her and offering to say that he loves her, but in reality, greed gets the, gets the, gets the better of him. And so it's insidious in that regard, and maybe you deal with greed, maybe you don't. Maybe on a more practical level, you're thinking, I'm not in any of those circles. But I would say that anything in your life that you invest an inordinate amount of time in to get more and more, and it becomes insatiable in your drive, my best guess is greed's at work. That it's fueling that desire so that you can have that which you don't have. James hit the nail on the head in James 4, 1, and 2. He said, you have, uh, you want, but you don't have. And so you go to the extent of actually killing people to get what you want. And he's describing the role that greed plays in taking us so far off our walk with the Lord that it eventually undoes us completely. James doesn't pull any punches on that. What is particularly evil about greed is eventually you start thinking about cutting corners and you start maybe doing some unethical things or some immoral things based on maybe trust that people had of you and you're looking at ways to gain from it where nobody sees it. Or you say, I'm cutting corners because everybody else cuts corners. And maybe in your workplace, you're encouraged to do that. Maybe um, you're fighting against that. Maybe there's something right in front of you that says, if I take this, no one will ever know. Maybe you're like, and maybe I'm like, if we're not careful, like Judas, who the gospel writer said greed was part of his undoing. He was uh, responsible for the group in terms of uh, the banking, the money that they had as a resource for their, 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 their ministry. Uh, he managed. 
And it was, in hindsight, pretty clear to everybody that he was taking out of the, taking out of the bag. And just a little bit here and a little bit there meant a little bit more later and a little bit more later to a point where he had gone so far down that road that he had decayed his conscience to such a degree that when he was approached by some priests about, about turning the life of Jesus over to them, betraying him, for 30 pieces of silver, he said, I'll do it. And all of a sudden, he made an exchange which was one that went down in infamy as one of the most immoral and unethical things a person could do. To betray the very person who came to earth to shower upon us the very heart of God, and yet your response to him is to turn him over to people that are going to execute him. And that's what's so profound about all of this, is how God came into our world in such a state and said, regardless of where your hearts are at, I want to try to bring about a change in your life so that you can know life and peace and joy. And some of us come to church and we think, I'm happy to come to church, but I don't feel like I'm good enough. I don't feel like I don't have my act together enough to come to church. I feel like I've got some stuff in my life that isn't quite sorted out. Or I have some skeletons in the closet. Well, let me tell you, if God brought his son into the world and died for the very people that were trying to destroy him, and, and he accepted them, how much more so does God accept us in things that are of lesser gravity? And God is looking at you and I, and he's saying, I, I, I know that there are things churning in your heart and your mind that are not fit for life with me forever. And maybe they fall along that continuum of one of those seven and if they do, God says, we need to go to work on that. And in the course of your lifetime, I'm just going to work different angles so that you come out of that and you're drawn into something better, drawn into a better mindset, a better outlook. Here's the bottom line for greed. This is where it goes. Greed dehumanizes by centering. I know this sounds a little long and long-winded, but bear with me. Greed dehumanizes by centering life's purpose on creating wins for myself. And as your whole life is thinking about what I can do for what I want for my purpose, you are forgetting that there's a larger storyline that God wants you and I to be a part of that's his purpose. But since we're making our own narrative up along the way and it's all about us, we can reduce people to objects if they serve us a need for us. And we can also look at our relationships as, I'm only going to be with you as long as you're useful for me. And that is a very sad, sad place to be. But I don't think it's any stretch to say that many of the signals that you're getting from this world and the environment that we live in are trying to cater to that view of the self. How these people can do that for you. How these relationships can work for you and your needs. And we've been so conditioned in this godless view of our humanity. That, and we're so comfortable with it that we don't even realize that from God's point of view it's completely wrong-headed and misguided. And it will lead nowhere except to an increasing internal sense of despair and hellishness. Ebenezer Scrooge. You look at that guy and you think, man, he's really arrived at his destination. 
He's getting his comeuppance. He's getting what he deserves. An old man dying lonely. Can't take his money with him. But you know what I like about the story? Is the fact that a higher being, in this case God, sends messengers to him and shows him snapshots of his life so that he can wake up to the reality of what's going on in his life and see a vision that is much better with greater possibilities and before it's too late, change his heart and open himself up to the lives that are in front of him, in front of him and the meaningfulness uh, that he can bring to their lives if he has a heart that is, that is tuned in the right way, a heart of mercy. Greed destroys that, and it destroys everything meaningful and valuable in those lives around you as you consider uh, their place in, in your life. Where do we go if that's where we've wound up? Well, I think that as we've described the problem, I'll just say the solution is the better vision. It's the true vision, actually. Jesus said, blessed. If you're doing this, blessed. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Recognizing every day is another day where God has brought to bear mercy on our lives. He's helped us along the way. He's provided things that we've needed. He's given us life and, 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 and breath. He's given us opportunities that maybe we didn't realize were his orchestration. He's given us friends and people and and things that um, have a lot to do with him uh, working behind the scenes to make it happen. And most of us don't have the eyes to see just how much he does that. But where God is really going with this is he's trying to show us that our lives are meant to, to, um, to, 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 to not take and to hoard and to be fearful and to feel scarcity, and to be discontent. He didn't envision that as life. He saw that as really not living at all, subhuman. But rather, he envisioned our lives to have life and have it more abundantly. But it, it, it's by rules that he has wired into us that have a lot to do with taking in and then giving out. I just want to do an exercise for a minute. Um, it's real easy. Everybody can do it. Matter of fact, everybody has been doing it uh, for uh, the duration of this message. And that is simply this. Just breathe in real deep. Now exhale. What you've just taken in is something that, um, of all the things that you have, is perhaps uh, the most valuable. It's oxygen. There is no way that we could provide our own oxygen to sustain our lives throughout. It is, it is, it is an act of mercy that God offers every day in his beautiful creation. And oxygen, whenever it's taken in, is exhaled in the form of carbon dioxide, which is utilized for plant life. God has just made this beautiful ecology of taking in and giving out, taking in and giving out. And he's designed us that way. If you look at a map of the, of the promised land, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an awesome region on the edge of the Mediterranean that has a, a river flowing through flowing down the middle of it, called the Jordan River. And the Jordan River flows into two large bodies of water. The first body of water the Jordan River flows into is the Sea of Galilee. And as it flows in there, um, all sorts of aquatic life just simply thrives in, in, that, in, that, in that very dynamic environment. And not only that... Uh, the livelihood of fishermen is, sustain, uh, is, is, is a sustainable living for their families. 
And all this goodness in life comes out of this body of water. And as the river flows in, the body of water uh, expels it back out into the river. And the river goes on uh, with, the, with the intention of bringing more life. But what happens to the river is it actually begins to flow into a basin that is otherwise known as the Dead Sea. You see, the Dead Sea has no outlet. It has no capability of keeping uh, the water uh, dynamic and fresh. It just simply takes everything that is good that the water has to offer. It consumes, and as it does, it just um, takes the total life out of everything that it consumes. And what God is trying to do even there is to create another image for us to ponder. And that is our lives weren't designed to take in, but rather they're designed to take in so that they could give out. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. Um, it's just God's way. We, um, it, it, everything that we consume, it goes out of our bodies in some form. Stuff that we take in goes back out. We can't help it. We're not designed to just look at ourselves as the, as the end of everything, but rather as vessels for God's usage. And once you wrap your mind around that, you realize there's nothing like the, like the man who said, I own these barns, I own this farm, I own this money, I own these opportunities. They're mine, mine, mine. And God says, no, they're not. You're not going to take them with, them with you. Matter of fact, after tomorrow they're gone. And there's nothing really that you and I have that is really truly ours. We're given the responsibility of taking care of it for a while and then we're to pass it on. If we take too much stuff, we have to manage too much stuff and pretty soon all of the time that we have to use for living life is spent managing all the stuff. God said, that's not really what I have in mind. You just need enough for each day. And yet our culture says you need more and more and bigger and better and on and on and on. Distracting us from life and the life abundant. So here's mercy. Let's break it down a little bit as we look for opportunities. When we're tuned to opportunities for mercy, we start scanning the landscape looking for opportunities. But not for us to gain, but rather for where God can work. And all of a sudden, you see somebody who maybe is, um, is a little down. And you say, that's an opportunity for me to be an encourager. Or you see somebody that you just want to be magnanimous towards. You want to bless their lives. You want to make their day. And you do something, um, maybe you offer a gift of some kind. Or you're aware of something that's important to them. And you provide it. And all of a sudden, they feel very blessed. Maybe they discover that what you have in terms of your relationship with the Lord is something they want. And you just go on down the list and you see at every turn God saying, where can you bless? Where can you encourage? Who needs rescued? Who is so destitute in this moment that unless someone else comes into their world, um, they're going to they're gonna either starve or not have a place to live or a number of basic needs that they're going to go without? How can... Maybe rescued. Maybe God's calling you to show mercy in that way. Maybe God said, just as I rescued you, maybe you need to rescue somebody else. And I, I thought about this for a minute, and I realized that there are a, a lot of us in the room who tend to see this as optional. 
But in the Old Testament, God rescued a group of people called the Israelites out of a land called Egypt. And when he did, they were, they were, they were very grateful because they had been slaves and they had been doing some pretty hard work for, with long hours and it was taking its toll on them. And they were being abused and considered very third class. And all these things were happening and God just jumped in and he said, I'm going to take you out of that. I'm going to deliver you into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. A beautiful land that's well resourced. And I'm going to do that not because of anything you've done. I'm going to do that just because I want to bless you. And so they took, they, they took him on his offer and they, they went up out of Egypt. And as they did, he said, now don't you forget, I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt and called you to be a very people of my own. And he, and he engineered some reminders for that. He said, now in response to that, what you need to do, when you worship, I want you to give me the first fruits of your, of, of your crop, the first fruits of your cows, of, of your sheep, of any, of any horses. I want the firstborn male. And I want that male to be sacrificed. And they're like, huh? Why would you want that? And when you have a male son, I want you to also dedicate your male son. And you're like, what? And as God engineered that into their experience, he was telling them, when you put me first, then you remember that everything that you have has come from me. And you'll also realize that what you have is an act of grace because of me. And you will always be grateful. And as God has initiated that institution, he's established a principle, I think, of first fruits. Um, in, in doing that, he offered his first son to us, who gave us life. When that son came, he said, regarding all this stuff we've been talking about this morning, he said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and then all that stuff, it'll come when you need it. And it's almost like God's just reminding you and I. Put me first. Because I'm your provider. I'm the one who rescued you out of sin. In our case, uh, it's not so much Egypt, but it's perhaps our own self-destructive tendencies. So I want to tell you a story about another farmer real quick as we wind it down. Um, in Illinois, where I'm from, there's a, a farmer who had a very... Um, uh, you know, he had a, a, a pretty prosperous operation. Two sons, uh, one of them had gone to school, became an MBA. Another, far, another son went to become an expert in agriculture. They combined their two talents and they took their very uh, initially austere family farm as it expanded. Uh, they took it to a whole scale that uh, they never thought possible. Going from a few hundred acres to literally thousands of acres. And one day, one of the sons came to the father and said, you know, I'm doing some math here, and you give a lot of money to the church. Uh, 10% of our, of our revenues, you're giving back to the church. If we were to take that 10% and fold that back into our business, imagine what we could do. Not only that, the Chinese are buying up all the farm ground around here, and so we need to make sure that they don't get it. And maybe, maybe that's what that 10% needs to be used for. Um, and, and they're just questioning why the father is so adamant about offering the first fruits of, of, of their earnings. And the father steps back and he says, um, I don't know if you realize this or not, but we weren't always farmers. We used to live in town. 
when I was very young. Uh, my, um, my, my mother and father um, didn't go to church, pretty godless. Alcoholism was in the equation. And uh, one day they went to church and they found that God wanted to offer them a new way of life. He wanted to take them out of the evil and the discord and the drinking and all of the carrying on and the boundarylessness and bring life and vitality back to their existence one step at a time. So the family took their faith. They trusted God. They bought a piece of property. That piece of property developed into a small family farm. And as they honored God, God blessed. And as God blessed and they, they, they thought more clearly about life and things around them, they saw that uh, they always have to keep in mind that if it wasn't for God, there wouldn't be a farm. And so the father told the two sons, if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And there is so much about God that most of us don't see because our minds aren't tuned to the reality of his presence. But when they start to tune in, all of a sudden what has been a self-centered way of living becomes a generous way of living. You experience the generosity of God's love and you can't help but ask, how can I, how can I just expand on that generosity into other people's lives? How can I be a blessing for other people? How can, since I've been shown mercy, how can I show mercy to other people? And it just naturally begins to occur in a person who keeps Jesus in their sights at all times. It doesn't occur necessarily the way that we would like to have it happen. But God is faithful and God is trustworthy and God is merciful to us sinners. Well, here's, uh, here, here's how this unfolds. The bottom line, I think you'll be made rich. Maybe not necessarily in ways that Ebenezer Scrooge would try to, try to dictate in his, in, his, uh, in, his, in his carnal self. But rather rich in the ways of God that goes in a variety of directions. However it is that he wants to bless us. By exchanging eyes of greed for eyes of mercy... And when you do, God will provide his mercy and his blessing. And I think there are a lot of people who need mercy. But they've been so busy hoarding that they haven't looked for opportunities to show it. The preoccupation has been so overwhelming that they're not even thinking about giving it to other people. But when you do, things start to open up. The water that's flowing in starts to flow out. And it's like God says, you bless and I'll bless. You bless and I'll bless. And you have eyes for other people and I will use you to show mercy to them and lead them to me. And, and so many dynamics come into play when we say, yes, God, I'm going to trust you with my life. I'm going to trust you with everything that concerns me. I'm going to trust you where I'm discontent. And look for the contentment that you can only offer in Christ. I'm going to trust you in my fear when the whole news cycle is, 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 is constantly conjuring up in me anxiety about world events. Notwithstanding the fact that they like it whenever you pay attention to what they have to say. Because, well, their product uh, sponsors like you looking at their advertisements. 
And it's a whole treadmill that's self-feeding. And when God looks at us and he says, you're worried about job loss. You're worried about where the economy's going. You're worried about all these things that involve scarcity. I want you to know something. I'm Lord over all of that. And if all that stuff is going on, I'm allowing it to go on, possibly to get the attention of people who are living in fear and scarcity, so that when they turn to me and they start living by the rules of my economy of daily bread and of of provision and care, they'll learn to trust me. And that's all God wants from us at the end of the day is for us to trust him. That's all he wants. Because many people in this room can tell you through time and experience God is trustworthy. He won't let you down. He will have your back. And he loves you so much you know how much he loves you based on a bloodstained cross. The real question is are you allowing one or or all of the lies of the seven deadly sins to keep him out so that you can do it your way. And if you are, there's no room for him and for that. He wants that space as well so he can bless you in that space. So I just end this series with, I guess, a, a, a call. If there is space in your life that one of the seven deadly sins is taking up, then would you just commit to maybe fasting from one of those sins for a month? Just saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to engage in that. I'm not going to be greedy. I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to respond that way. I'm going to give that to God. And after a month, and you invite him into that place, just see what happens when he shows up. How maybe after 30 days you're thinking, Wow, I wasn't really trusting him. Wow, he did show up. And maybe it runs deeper than that. Maybe it's just you need to be rescued from the whole, the whole captivity of it all. And God says, that's why my son came into this world. So that you could be rescued. And you could know my blessing. And you could know my joy and my life and all the qualities that make up life with me. And that just starts with surrender. God It's all yours. I'm all yours. My heart's open to you. And if you can bring yourself to that place, you'd be surprised at what he brings to fill what you've given him.